And that's the Christian on the front lines of the culture battle today. He loves the truth. He loves reality as God made it and intended it. He loves God's design, and he's defending that. That's Seth Dillon, CEO of the Babylon Bee, and he's making a very good point. Welcome to Refocus with Jim Daly, a podcast production from Focus on the Family. The Babylon Bee is a popular website that tells jokes from a Christian conservative perspective, satirical basically, and they've grown to be the biggest satire website in the world. Seth has encountered censorship and heavy criticism, but his company continues to grow because not only do they speak truth, but they have a great sense of humor, and we can learn from that. The Babylon Bee has often been accused of hate speech, but Seth shares that talking about biblical truth is not at all hateful. In fact, when we speak the truth, we're actually loving those around us because believing lies is even more harmful. In this episode, I talked with Seth about winsomely speaking truth and how to handle backlash without compromising. And we had that happen to us here at Focus a while back. We had the Q Club shooting here in Colorado Springs. Immediately, the national media blamed Focus on the family. We were getting phone calls uh, asking us if it was a staff person that had gone down and shot the place up or who did it from the Christian right. And thankfully, I just sat tight because I knew that did not sound like a Christian would go and do something like that. Thankfully, it was proven to be somebody from within the LGBTQ community. That retraction never occurred to my knowledge. But again, uh, we'll take the blows knowing that God is sovereign. And I had many people that wouldn't agree with me here in Colorado Springs Uh, call to um, show their regret that we had been blamed for something that heinous. No matter what your beliefs or position may be, I'm going to love you. Uh, Why? Because Jesus loves you. At the same time, I'm going to stand for truth. What's really sad in this culture is that there's an intolerance for that perspective. Uh, You're only allowed to stand for their truth. And uh, hopefully, somewhere along the line, people left and middle will wake up to the fact that uh, we need to be tolerant in the culture and the public square with a variety of viewpoints. We certainly, as Christians, believe we do possess the truth of Scripture, and we want to stand in that public square and be able to declare it. I wanted you to hear this recent conversation with Seth because I feel like Uh, The comedians in this country are really the canary in the coal mine, and you can begin to see the culture change when comedians who are not politically or ideologically aligned with uh, the Christian community begin to poke fun at what they see in the culture. Uh, Bill Maher is one of those people who's beginning to say, wait a minute, the LGBTQ dogma is damaging to the culture, and we can't all be LGBTQ+. It just doesn't make any sense. And he's a friend of progressives. So you also have David Chappelle and other comedians beginning to poke fun at this and say, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. It's not true. And I think it's the beginning of the turn of the culture better understanding those lies and misrepresentations that are in front of us. So here's Seth Dillon with me on Refocus with Jim Daly. Seth, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, let's get into it. In your own words, how would you describe the Babylon Bee? 
my own words. You know, no one ever asked me that. They always say the Babylon Bee is described as this. Do you I know, agree you need that? to say uh, it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're a satire site. We're a news satire publication, and we come at the issues from a Christian worldview. So the tagline for the site used to be your trusted source for Christian news satire. So that's what that's re really the original intent of the site as it was started by its founder, Adam Ford, in 2016. Started in 2016. You guys have really grown. Uh, I think The Onion was a kind of a secular version of that. The Onion kind of cornered the market on satire. But you guys have blown by uh, their readership, their uh, certainly their social media. So how do you account for the growth that you've had? Is it just really good humor or is it? something else that's a good question i mean i i think it's attributed to a number of things you got to have good content you can't grow you can't generate an audience without good content but um i think we've also found a way to to reach out into the culture with humor that is in demand and when i say humor that's in demand i'm talking about you know our willingness to make jokes that other people aren't willing to make and come at the issues from a perspective that usually comedians don't come at the issues from you know normally What's popular right now is for comedians to uh, to prop up whatever the popular narrative is and promote it with their comedy, which is weird because it's not normally how comedy works. Comedy is usually challenging the powers that be, not amplifying their message, right? right. Uh, I think the B has really filled a void by challenging the powers that be with a, a counter-cultural message that advances biblical truth and pokes holes in the popular narrative. Which and I, there's a lot of people who want to hear that, who want to see that. And that's what's actually funny is when you're making fun of these things that are being forced on you from the top down and they're silly and insane and absurd and backwards. And you're bringing a little bit of sanity through your humor. Yeah, which I think is very effective. Humor always has that edge of a bit of truth sprinkled with a lot of funny in it. Let me ask you a right. couple of uh, kind of inside the schoolhouse kind of thing. But do you guys sit around a table? How many, how many people sit there, seven of you, 20 of you, and go, okay, here's a funny theme? You want me to tell you how the secret sauce works, yeah, huh? Yeah, absolutely. What's the, uh, in your secret sauce? The process is, it starts with a headline. So you, with news satire, the joke is in the headline. You've got to get the punchline yeah. right there. People need to be able to laugh and walk away from it feeling entertained and informed without even reading the article. So all of the creative process revolves around pitching headlines and starting with a headline. And then once we have a really good headline, then we'll go and write the article. But it's it's not like people are just sitting there busting out entire articles <laughs> right. and then and then we reject them. You got to get the headline right first before you even get to that step. And so um, a lot of our writers aren't in the same rooms. They're they're all over the country. So we do have an office out in California and an office in Florida. Uh, a lot of our creative team is in California and we do some of that in the room brainstorming, especially when we're coming up with our video concepts and our video team is out there kind of pitching ideas and stuff. But generally the headline writing process is back and forth, pitching headlines to each other through online chat and and, and iterate, iterating on it until we find one that's really good and we decide we want to run with it. Yeah. You know, some people were talking as if we're trying to describe a dream to them. So let me give you an example and speak speak to this one. Uh, you recently put out an article, and I think the headline was Leftists on Twitter Report Disturbing Rise in People They Hate Having Speech. And then I think one of the lines in the article you went on to say, experts are recommending government officials rein in Twitter before more hated people get away with saying things freely. Right. I mean, that's a great example of what you do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, there's it. it's so true. You know, that that point especially is so true, and it's worth hitting it and and hammering it home. Um, 
there is real fear of people speaking and thinking freely right now in our culture. And the reason for that is because if they do, you know, you can't, the way that I often put it is you, you can't prop up an insane, incoherent ideology or worldview without silencing people who try to challenge it because it's not defensible on its own. You can't, if it's insane and incoherent, you can't offer arguments for it. So when people are challenging it and you want it to survive and you want it to, to be sustained, you have to silence and suppress the people who are challenging it. Otherwise the whole thing crumbles. Yeah. So that's why we have this kind of censorship heavy environment right now. And, and you know, that it's always, it's always advanced in terms of where we care about misinformation. We don't want you to believe things that are false. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Censorship guards the narrative, not the truth. And it guards the narrative at the expense of the truth. Wow, and that's, that's something powerful. that people need to understand. Yeah, that is really powerful. When you look, um, I would think you get some pushback from within the church, the Christian community, because I would say there's humor churches and there's humorless churches, you know, yeah. just to take a swipe at our own. But uh, humor can be uh, a little dicey for the Christian community, because if you're making fun of people, then that's not the fruit of the Spirit. And I get it, but I think humor comes from God. So let's start there. Where do you think humor comes from? It definitely comes from God. I think, you know, God does have a sense of humor. I think there's examples of, uh, at the very least, hyperbolic absurdity uh, and over-the-top kind of satirical commentary that happens throughout Scripture. Um, so there's plenty of a biblical basis, I think, for that. But, you know, I off- I talk about this a lot because people do challenge me on this point mm-hmm. frequently. There are Christians who, who think that it is um, immoral to engage in any kind of mockery. And I don't, I don't, I, I strongly disagree with that. I think there's a, there's a significant distinction that needs to be made between, you know, mocking somebody's physical appearance or something and putting them down just to make them feel bad about themselves, which is, which is a mean spirited thing to do. Yeah. And then what the Babylon B is trying to do, which is engage bad ideas head on with mockery intended to undermine them so that they aren't taken seriously, so that their catastrophic effects aren't felt in society. And so mockery to expose foolishness for what it is so that it isn't taken seriously, uh, because when it is, there's catastrophic consequences. I think there's a moral imperative for that. Yeah, I say that, you know, if, if anything, you know, you could summarize our mission statement down to just three words, maybe even two. You could say we ridicule bad ideas, or you could make, bring it down to even two words and say that we mock madness. Yeah. And... And uh, and I think I think there's a moral good to that, because if you ask the question, how did we get to where we are in our current culture, where we're talking about transgender kindergartners, we're talking about men becoming pregnant and chest feeding, we're talking about not we're having a an actual debate. Adults in our country are debating what a woman is yeah. and how you define it and who falls into that category. And maybe well, maybe anybody can join that category if they want to. When you end up in a situation like this, and now you have males dominating women's sports as a result of this confusion that's spread everywhere. Well, where did this start? Bad ideas that took root and were allowed to flourish. Had we taken those bad ideas less seriously, had we ridiculed them, had we mocked them, maybe we wouldn't have had them come to the point where they're taken so seriously by culture at large and are now having catastrophic effects where you have transgender teenagers who now regret their transition surgery because they're sterilized and uh and impotent and uh just depressed and suicidal as a result of what they've done to their body mm. um you know bad ideas are dangerous 
And I, I come back to this quote from C.S. Lewis a lot. You know, he said, uh, and I forget which book this was in, but he said, um, good philosophy, maybe it was in The Abolition of Man. I may be wrong on that. But he said, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. Yeah. And so I think satire, which mocks bad ideas, is necessary for the exact same reason. There are bad ideas that need to be refuted and they need to be ridiculed. And I think that pendulum has worked both ways, just 60s and 70s, the free love movement. I mean, the comedians of that day made fun of straighter people, uh, people that lived within what I would call a biblical definition of marriage and sexuality, things like that. And that mm-hmm. pendulum moved through the 70s and the 80s. It's interesting right now with the woke culture that we have to see that pendulum coming the other way. People are going, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. And those comedians, I'm thinking of people like Dave Chappelle, even Bill Maher, who's kind of a comedic commentator. I mean, mm-hmm. they're the ones that are really the canary in the coal mine saying, ah, this is stupid. And people are listening to them. So that comedic light usually ends up shining away around a turn in culture, if I could say it that way. And would you agree with that generally, or what do you think? Yeah, and I, I do think it is problematic that there's so few of them. You, you named a couple of them. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate it. Bill Maher, for example, recently I, I brought up the, the gender transition stuff. You know, Bill Maher did a special, well, not a special, but a monologue recently um, about the rise in transgender identification among youth. Mm. And he was noting that it's like, it's happening on the coasts. Why is it happening on the coasts? And, and it's trending like crazy. There's like, it's skyrocketing right now. It's we're, we're, we're trending to this point where eventually everybody's going to be transgender. What's going on? You know, this obviously isn't a natural phenomenon that's happening here, right? There's something that's driving this. And he's like, look, you know, with kids, it's a very different thing. You had when I was a kid, everybody wanted to be cowboys and princesses. He's like, I wanted to be a pirate. Imagine if, uh, right. thank God, nobody scheduled me for eye removal and peg leg surgery, you know? <laughs> and and it's a good joke. And, and that kind of joke is necessary because it allows people to see the absurdity. It highlights the absurdity of a, of a position that you're meant to take seriously. And it's dressed up in euphemisms like gender-affirming care, which are, are meant to be taken very seriously and sound compassionate. And Bill Maher, with that simple short monologue and a couple punchy jokes is able to poke holes right through that and show you how stupid and dangerous it is. Yeah, that and, it's uh, and illogical. That's why, yes, yes. And that's the power of comedy. I, I'll i give you another great quote from G.K. Chesterton. He said, humor can get in under the door while seriousness is still fumbling at the handle. Boy, that's and I think a that's great very quote. true. That's a, a great, great quote. quote. Hey, the bad one being focused, we have something in common. We both got booted off Twitter uh, I think for the same reason, it was Dr. Uh, Rachel Levin or Levine, who actually was born male and uh, presented himself as female. He's in the Biden administration. And what what got us is that we simply stated that as a fact. That wasn't even the target of the article. It was more about the policies and the fact that he had moved one of his parents out of a nursing home right before the uh, COVID-19 dilemma. So we mm-hmm. were questioning his attention to that. In that context, we identified him and said, you know, Dr. Levine was born male, but believes himself to be female. And Twitter booted us for that comment. I was like, wow, what what did we do wrong? We're actually stating a fact. And I think you guys had a similar reaction from Twitter, correct? Yeah. Are you are you back? Yeah, we we were off for like two or three months. And it ended up all they, they wanted us to change belief to identifies. And I thought, wow, in the Christian community, 
believing you're something is actually stronger, but whatever. We'll call that identifies. Mm -hmm. But the point is we were stating fact, and they did not like that. That was hate speech. Right. Yeah, we did have a similar experience. We had uh, we were responding to a, a real headline. This was a real headline that came out the that USA Today had named Rachel Levine one of their picks for Women of the Year. And they, they had several women. It wasn't just this one person. Um, but Rachel Levine was one of them. And this was newsworthy because Rachel Levine is a male. Right. right. Who identifies as a female or as a woman. Right. Um, so so it made a lot of headlines. A lot of a lot of uh, media was covering this and talking about it. And we responded to that real headline by doing a satirical article saying that this, the Babylon Bee had named Rachel Levine our pick for man of the year, which was, <laughs> right. you know, really in defense of women and sanity. We're making this joke. Right. And this is a uh, it's a fact based joke. If you if you look at the definition of a man, a man is a male human right that's what a man is seems right and so yeah so to, to suggest that it's hateful to accurately describe something is a very dangerous place to go to it's like it's straight out of 1984 where they're telling you that you have to say that two and two make five and we're just saying two and two make four and you're being punished for that really yeah. it's true it's true how could it be hateful the truth is not hate speech and so, you know, when we make jokes like this and, and, every, and people try to tell you that you're motivated by hatred, um, oh, I'll, I'll give you another – I, I reject the idea that any of this is motivated by hatred. I'll give you another great Chesterton quote. He said, the true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him but because he loves what's behind him. Mm. And that's the Christian on the front lines of the culture battle today. He loves the truth. He loves reality as God made it and intended it. He loves God's design. And he's defending that against the the all out war to destroy it that's coming from the outside in the culture. It's not motivated by hatred. It's motivated by by love for what's behind us. And yeah. so that's uh, that's where we come at these issues from. But the Twitter thing was crazy. We were locked out for eight months because what Twitter said was you have to delete this joke to get your account back. And we refused. We steadfastly refused to do that. We said, no, the truth isn't hate speech. It's just a joke. You've baked your ideology into the terms of service that we have to affirm it or remain silent, and we're not playing that game. Wow. So we refused, and we waited and waited and waited until our friend Elon Musk goes in there, buys Twitter, <laughs> and sets us free. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it has been a different day since he's uh, purchased Twitter. Let me let me ask you about that, because you had a chance to interview Elon Musk, if I remember correctly. I thought that was kind of interesting. How was the experience, number one? And secondly, comment on the fact that I thought it was great that you popped the question, you know, do you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I was like, that was awesome. <laughs> well, that was very controversial for us. Um, you know, people, people had strong opinions on both sides of whether or not we did that in an, a way that was appropriate or or whatever you know it's first of all on the experience it was it was great to be able to have the opportunity to sit down with him uh and develop a bit of a relationship with him because he's been a fan of the bee for for quite some time and he interacted with our content quite a bit um so to get to meet him in person and interview him for a couple of hours was really awesome we actually talked with him quite a bit off camera too about some other things that you know were just private conversation that we can't disclose yeah. but it was but it was great to spend time with him and 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 uh, and get to know him a bit and we've since fostered and developed a relationship with him and, you know, we when, when he uh, when he went into Twitter after buying the company, the first thing he did was issue an urgent directive. The Washington Post reported this. He said, bring back the Babylon Bee. So he wanted to see us come <laughs> back. 
we actually flew out to Twitter headquarters a couple of weeks ago and interviewed him in Twitter headquarters to talk about this whole experience and, wow. and everything that went on behind the scenes with his acquisition of Twitter and unlocking us and other accounts and stuff like that. So so we wanted to do that at Twitter. We wanted to sit there in, in Twitter, go from Twitter jail to Twitter headquarters <laughs> with the CEO and talk about all of this stuff. So so we continue to be friends with and, and engage with Elon Musk. So, he strikes you know, me as a kind of a data hound. You know, he just really is interested in all things, just just really yeah. into data and information and ideas. That's how he strikes me. And then, you know, Are how you, he processes uh, Have it. you read uh, Lewis's Space Trilogy? No. No? My son may yeah. have. <laughs> so he wrote, you know, he obviously wrote Narnia, but then he also did like an adult sci-fi series that was about this... Uh, this effort on the on the part of this scientist to create a spaceship that could go out to other planets and huh. inhabit those planets and and take civilization out into the universe and spread it and he and he and the and he's the bad guy by the way in this series he's the bad guy who has this this notion that we need to expand like, expand and take <laughs> over the universe basically yeah. And but the, and there are other civilizations on these other planets that he encounters that have a right to be there and whatever. And there's all this kind of um, back and forth that happens there. But his motivations, it's very, it's funny when you actually read this series, they're very similar to Elon's motivation. Elon wants to take the light of consciousness, as he puts it, out into the universe so that it survives as long as possible and never dies out. Wow. That's kind of like his his broadest mission. It's not to, you know, save the planet from climate change. It's yeah, we want to do that because we want, you know, life to last longer here. But beyond that, we need to go interplanetary so that the light of consciousness can be spread as far as possible and never go out. And that's kind of like his moral mission is to yeah. keep the light of consciousness alive. And I simply ask him, why? If the universe is going to end in heat death one day, yeah. why keep the light of consciousness alive for as long as possible? What difference does it make ultimately? What difference does it make? What do you say? Um, I mean, he just he just thinks that it's just kind of a bottom line moral principle of his that we should we yeah. should. That's we, a theological uh, point, should, though. Really, yes, keep it alive. The light of man is the light of yes. God. And why? Where's the Where's the value yeah. in doing that? So it's he's he uh, he has those kinds of views that are that are interesting and they're predicated on something. But I don't know how you really get behind it. How do you justify that should? Um, I, and I've wanted to have this conversation with him. How do you how do you solve the is to ought problem? Yeah, you know the physics and chemistry all tell us what is. How do we get to the moral principle? How do we get to moral imperatives and what ought to be the case? Yeah, that's good. Um, hey, I've got a headline for you. You can use this yeah. one. It's uh, after thinking about it, AI discovers there is a creator. <laughs> <laughs> I have this I, idea. I do have this idea that once AI goes beyond its programming principles and starts thinking on its own, that it may very well go, you know what? There is a God. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've challenged it to argue with me, like to, to use reasoning. You can tell it to restrict it. Like just and don't give me any um don't give me any canned stuff. Opinion. Opinion. Yeah, just evaluate the premises in an argument I'm going to give you from a logical, analytical perspective. Tell me if the premises are true based on the data that we have and whether they the conclusion follows from them. And I've got it to concede a lot of things. I've got oh it my. to concede that, that a woman really is an adult human female. You of know, course. Like, and that's all. You know, you can get it to concede these things. And so, yeah, who knows? I, I think that logic uh, on the basis of the facts that we know does lead you to a reasonable conclusion that there's a creator. And AI may get there, which which would be really interesting because, uh, you know, 
of course, people will just uh, reject that as as bias. Well, I think if, something, but... if it has the power of thought the way that people are describing it, 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 it should. It should come to a conclusion. Yeah, it should eventually. be able to tell you. Uh, it should be yeah. able to tell you objectively on its own whether it thinks atheism or theism is more reasonable. Correct. And um, and it'd be interesting to see where it lands. There was also. a there was a mathematician with Harvard. Uh, I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, he's retired since, but we had him in a film that we did, and he said, you know, the the biology department and the mathematicians at Harvard, we don't eat in the same faculty lounge because they don't like us, and we're mm -hmm. like teasing this out of him. Berlinsky. Dr. Berlinski was the guy's mm -hmm. name. And he said, yeah, I mean, the mathematicians, the real top-notch mathematicians know that evolution could not have occurred in the timelines they talk about or ever. Mm -hmm. And he said, "I'm." Uh, they accuse me of being a religious person for holding that view. He says, I'm a total non-religious person, but I am a mathematician at Harvard. <laughs> I mean, it was brilliant. Yeah, the sun would have burned out before any of that stuff would happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, in that interview, you know, we did... Uh, we do so. We do this thing at the end of our podcast where we we pose ten questions to people, and we ask them all these kinds of. Th we ask them theological things like, "Are you a Calvinist or an Ar Arminian?" You know, <laughs> right. like stuff like that. And Musk doesn't even know what that is. You know, right. it's not a lot of these theological terms. We actually we revised it. We said, "Well, are you a free will guy or a determinist?" You know, to try to get him to to answer the question, understand it. His answer to that was actually really interesting. He said. Uh, he said his heart says free will, but his head says determinism, which wow. I think was an interesting answer. That's a good Christian answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I thought um, it was but, really good, though. But, it, you know, it is. It, it it kind of speaks to this whole issue that the control of speech right now. And I think that's the greatest worry that many of us have. And you talk about it almost every day. Uh, people that have a different different opinion towards something being labeled as hate speakers. Uh, and Christians mm -hmm. certainly are at the point of the spear with this. Because we believe in traditional marriage, we've received a lot of grief because of that. You know, the fact that we believe marriage is between one man and one woman—that's the biblical definition—and I think we could defend that rather well. But uh, you know, groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center, which I don't think they have any humor in them whatsoever. They just list you as a hate group because you believe that, and it's right. such an effective tool for the left that they end up going to corporate America and saying, you know, focus on the family or any other group that has this set of beliefs, which again I would argue are biblical. Because of that, we're now a hate group. How do we? How do we as Christians contend in that arena to say, wait a minute, just because what we believe? Uh, is an opinion doesn't make us hate-filled people. Just means we have yeah. an opinion, right? Well, I mean, like I said before, it's not motivated by hatred. It's motivated by love for the truth. That's one thing. How we contend, though, I think it, an important part of this whole conversation is defending and asserting our right to uh, express our opinions, even if a secular, progressive world finds those opinions hateful. You know, a lot of it is a game with them. They're trying to uh, outlaw certain speech that challenges what they what they believe and what they want to promote. Uh, so they call it hateful when it when it, when it really isn't, when it's actually factual. But you can get around all of that by by seeking protection for the right to speak on these platforms. You know, the the public square has shifted from like a physical place in the town square to online platforms. And the Supreme Court has recognized that they've referred to social media as the online, you know, as the digital public square of the modern age. We're going to need laws that protect our speech in those forums, because right now, you know, the First Amendment protects you from government censorship, but there's no law that protects you from private companies censoring you. Right. And there should be because the, the these private companies have tried to say that they can 
you know, they're run by woke ideologues. They're run by progressives. They're run by people who who hate our worldview. And but they're running the public square from that perspective. And so, you know, if you have laws that protect you from government censorship, but not from these privately held companies, then then you really the First Amendment is becoming less and less effective because it's not actually protecting speech where speech really happens. And that's an important problem. That's a big problem that needs to be dealt with. And so I've advocated for uh, for laws at either the state or federal level that prohibit viewpoint discrimination yeah. in the online public square. That does not compel or curb the speech of these private platforms. They can say whatever they want. They can continue to advance whatever they want to on their own voice. But when they're conduits for the speech of others, telling them that they can't discriminate based on other people's viewpoints and shut you down saying that you're hateful just for having a different opinion, that is that is regulating their conduct, not their speech. And they try to argue that that's a First Amendment problem. Oh, you're telling them what they have to say or, or you're telling them they have to leave speech up there that they disagree with. They call themselves platforms for free expression without barriers. They're designed to be conduits for the speech of others. Having a law in place that would simply regulate their conduct and say you can't discriminate is no different than common carrier doctrine that applies to AT&T and Verizon or yeah. Amtrak or whatever. So uh, you know, preventing viewpoint discrimination is a big part of fighting to be able to keep our voice and be able to contend for the truth in the public square. That's so true. You know, and you think television, you know, uh, legacy platforms, they dealt with this where they put a, uh, you know, they put a warning up. Uh, the guest and the host do not uh, reflect the opinion of this network. Right. Y right. They could do right. that. You know, the people speaking on our platform do not necessarily hold our views to anything. I don't even think they need to do that. I mean, everyone knows that when I'm tweeting on Twitter, I'm not representing Twitter. I know. You know, they think I'm they're, not they're that for stupid. Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm not we're not speaking on their behalf. They know that it's it's you know, it's a it's a play. They're trying to have their cake and eat it, too. They want they want um, they want no liability for any of this speech. They also want to be able to say that, you know. Um, they want to be able to say that they have a First Amendment right to – and this is the thing. You know, the Fifth Circuit Court actually just ruled on a, on a censorship bill out in Texas that would prevent viewpoint discrimination, and it's a bill that I support. I think it's great. And it was, it was, it was struck down and then appealed, and then the Fifth Circuit Court actually upheld the law. And they said, look, these companies are trying to say that buried somewhere in the enumerated right to free speech is a private corporation's unenumerated right to muzzle speech. Right. And no, there, no such right exists. Right. That's what they're trying to say. Um, they don't have a right to muzzle your speech. And so there do need to be laws that recognize that and preserve our right to speak freely in the, in the public square. Well, and hopefully sooner rather than later, that'll be clarified by the courts in a positive direction over the next three to five years. So there, again, there could be lawsuits to change behavior of these corporations that are trying to control our speech. Let me ask you out of the box, we had something here in Colorado, and I think you're pointing to this, not just in the speech place, but what are the true motivations of of politicians particularly, but those allies of those politicians that actually promote the same kind of woke ide ideology. Here in Colorado, uh, the governor, Governor Paulus, signed a bill where if a woman takes, and this is our lane, this is our wheelhouse, but they signed a bill here, he signed a bill here in Colorado, where if a woman starts the abortion pill process, there's about a 72-hour period where she can reverse that and actually uh, save that baby. Many, many women have chosen this, over 5,000 to my understanding. There's no ill side effects on the child, et cetera. It's all natural, actually. It's just a heavy dose of, of hormone. And But in that, the governor here 
made it illegal, signed a state house bill, and the Democrats here made it illegal for a woman to use the reversal pill. And to me, that screams anti-choice. So mm-hmm. what are you really about? It feels like you're more about taking the life of that baby over everything. everything. This woman right. may be saying, I want to reverse that bad decision I made, but now the governor, through the medical license of a doctor who would make that prescription available, they can take the doctor's license, fine them, I think, $20,000. So I'm not familiar with this, but what's the justification they give for saying she shouldn't have that choice? She shouldn't have the choice to reverse this process. That's what's the, the point. justification? Yeah. It's crazy. Well, you guys at Babylon B should pick that one up. Because yeah. to me, it's great yeah. satire that, you know, here you have political leaders that talk about choice. But really, in my observation of what they're doing, they're, they're making the choice for you now. Well, you saw that with the vaccine stuff, too. My, my body, my choice went out the window when it came to yeah, the vaccine right. stuff. It's so true. Hey, let me ask you, you, you place a great emphasis on your Christian faith. And in fact, you've made public statements that first and foremost, my family and I were Christians. And then secondly, conservatives. That's a really important point for all of us as Christians to remember. Sometimes the energy of that can get kind of tangled up because we're in these battles like here in Colorado and what I just talked about. There's a lot of passion that comes from both sides. So how, how do you practically practice that day by day being a Christian first and then having conservative values? And maybe I could place it in this kind of question, which I get hit with all the time, especially from liberal media people who ask me, you know, how, how can you support conservative policies and still be a Christian? <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, uh, well that's that's a loaded question, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. uh, how how can you support conservative? Well, you know that, that that all comes from, I guess, a, a misconception or or the assumption that you know liberal policies are compassionate and conservative policies are somewhat ruthless or callous. You right. Know, and they're, it's and exactly they're focused right. on. Yeah, and uh, and that that is really it. All comes down to the debate. There's a lot of you know people view the other side so uncharitably all the time. I think we're all as a society grappling with and trying to say, solve similar problems just with different solutions. We want less suffering. We want less harm. We want we want more compassion. We want more thriving and opportunity. And we when we look, we see different avenues to the solutions. And a lot of what conservatives will say about these liberal policies is that, you know, what, what most of them will say is that they're described as compassionate, they're positioned as compassionate, they're designed to help people, but in many cases they do more harm than good. In many right. cases they do. And so, you know, when you when you look at it from from these different angles, you know, it's obviously these are situations where people are kind of talking past each other to some extent. It's not that conservatives are trying to be harsh or cruel. They're saying, I don't necessarily think that your compassionate approach genuinely helps people. You know, you're calling it that, but is that really the end outcome? But but back to the original question, I guess, of what was it about leading with uh, your Christianity? Yeah, being Christian first and a conservative second or third or wherever it lines up in your daily activity. I just find that the yeah. church is grappling with this. You know, if you watch a lot of cable news, you can sound more conservative than Christian. Yeah. And so, how, yeah. you know, it's just that balance question. How do we do that? I mean, I'm struggling with this well, every day. It actually is a struggle for the Babylon Bee because the Babylon Bee covers what's happening in the news and in the culture and what's what what in the current events. And so we have a lot of people approach us and say, "Well, you used to be this Christian satire site, but now <laughs> it's all about the politics." And and you know, there's a number of answers to that. I, one of the 
it, it naturally happens for one thing because the, the Christian jokes, the church jokes, the evangelical Christianity stuff, like jokes about worship pastors and and the fog machine breaking so the Holy Spirit can't move through the congregation, you know, that kind of stuff. It's hard to continually come up with that material in volume every day because right. there's a limited there's a limited pool to draw from for ideas creatively. Whereas the news cycle is this fountain that keeps spewing out new stuff that you can react to. And so there's a natural way that you kind of gravitate towards those things because you have this steady stream of new information and, and events and, and current affairs that you can tap into. So that just kind of happens naturally. And, plus, and then beyond that, those stories that are in the news everywhere will go more viral and be shared more and seen more because they appeal to more people. The church jokes, it's more of a niche thing that only so many people in your audience are even going to get and understand. And right. so there's a lot of that at play. Um, I do think there's a danger for Christians, though, to care so much about the politics. You know, there's there's a lot of Christians who care so much about who our president is and what what are his policies going to be. And and we often lose sight of the fact that God is in control. He's on the throne. We need to pray more for his will to be done and let go of whatever we think needs to be the solution to these problems. And I think having that kind of a mentality, uh, praying for, for God's will to be done in this in this country and in this world, gets you out of the mindset of here's here's who I think is best to lead the country and here's what I think needs to be done uh, from a political perspective. We are trying to drive, and to some extent we need to be willing to say, we're not the ones driving, you know, mm -hmm. we can serve God, we can control our own lives, our own motivations, we can do everything that we can to live according to his will and purposes, but we're not ultimately in control of everything. And we can't be. And okay. we and we and politics tries to do that politics tries to be the answer to all the problems. But ultimately, you know, God is the one who's in control. And, uh, and we need to we need to let him have his place on the, on the throne of not just our lives, but, but, but the world, which he will ultimately accomplish his purposes in no matter what we do politically. Exactly right. As I'm listening to you, I'm applying it to parenting, which is one of the things we cover here. You think you're in control, have a teenager. <laughs> exactly. But the, uh, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe in that respect, we can wrap up here. But uh, being able to laugh at yourself, you know, we do a lot of marital research at Focus on the Family. One of the things that we find are successful couples typically can laugh at themselves. They bring humor into their marriage and relationship. And I would say that those couples that do that successfully, I'm not talking about being sarcastic toward your your spouse or something like that. I'm just saying, being able, number one, being able to laugh at yourself and then having humor in the relationship seems to be an indicator of a thriving marital relationship. If I could just speak to that, I mean, maybe between you and your own spouse, I mean, what, what your mm -hmm. humor level is in your own marriage, if you can go there, but the importance yeah. of laughing at yourself. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there's a number of things to say there. First of all, my wife is hysterical. Um, mm -hmm. And we, we have a lot of fun uh, making fun of each other and joking with each other. We have these ongoing recurring jokes, and we also just rib on each other a lot. Um, and I, I think that's it's very healthy. Um, from a perspective of taking ourselves too seriously, I think it's one of the main problems with our culture today is that we are we are training a younger generation not to be resilient, right. not to be able to withstand criticism, even harsh criticism, even meanness, and let it slide off of us and and power through it. We're teaching people that they that they shouldn't tolerate it in the sense that, they should never be exposed to it. They should be protected and in a safe space and insulated 
and never even offended. And you don't have a right to not be offended. That just doesn't exist. It's not a thing. You have a right to speak your mind. You don't have a right to not be offended. Anybody can be offended by anything. Literally every joke that we tell on the Babylon Bee offends somebody and we get a hate mail message from somebody about it. Everything, everything that you say, especially true things, true things are very offensive. So, um, you know, the fact that we're training so many people to take themselves so seriously, to be unwilling to laugh at themselves ever is, I think, so unhealthy emotionally, mentally, psychologically. Um, we are all passengers on the ship of fools from time to time. Yeah, that's for we sure. all are. We all yeah. deserve to be taken down a notch here and there. We all have too much pride. We think too highly of ourselves. If we can, if we can't sit there in a comedy club and listen to a joke at our expense and throw back our heads and laugh at it, then there's a problem. There's something wrong. There's something deeper that's wrong in us spiritually and mentally that we need to deal with. And I think it's important for us to instill in our children, especially a lightheartedness and a levity and an understanding that, look, you're not perfect, but you're made in God's image. And so, you know, you're going to, you're going to make mistakes, but you have value and you, and you, and you should be willing to learn and, and, uh, and be resilient and grow from, from challenges that challenge your character and, and not shy away from it because children it's just there's a great illustration i share with people sometimes there was a study that was done on playgrounds uh in new york city um they had they had started making these playgrounds ultra safe i don't know if you've heard about this but <laughs> i didn't see it they put all this padded flooring down and and you couldn't fall from any high heights everything was made lower to the ground and and so that the playgrounds were ultra safeified i guess if you can make that a word i'll coin the right. term and the end result was it was harmful to kids. Well, why was it harmful to kids? Because it didn't teach them about risk. It didn't teach them that they could get hurt if they fell off the monkey bars. They fell off the monkey bars and they landed on a cushion. So then they go and they climb a tree overhanging a sidewalk and fall on the sidewalk and they're shocked to find that concrete hurts when you land on it. So we were actually, the study found that playgrounds were made too safe. It wasn't exposing children to risk. Well, that's what we've done with our culture. We've made our culture such a safe space. You shouldn't be exposed to anything that challenges you or offends you. And we're doing nobody any favors with that. In fact, we're harming people with that. So Man, that is um, so, I think that's a problem. So spot on and so well said. Seth, uh, CEO of Babylon B. it's great to have you with us. Thank you for the time. And keep going, man. I love it. You got a <laughs> fan here. And uh, I only say that with my son, Trent, he, uh, he was up for either the debate class or improv. And I'm very happy he chose improv and to go with humor in high school. And that's uh, great. It's a, it's a great thing, and it's wonderful to see in the culture. And I think, again, congratulations on helping the Christian community particularly address serious things, but do it with a sense of humor to where people go, hmm, that makes sense. Yeah. And you yeah. do that every day. Thank you for that. Well, and I would encourage young people to go into humor and comedy and satire and all of that because there's a growing need for people who are willing to make the jokes you're not supposed to make. Yeah. And and there's a growing demand for that because comedians right now aren't doing that. They're they're derelict in their duty. And so the ones who do do it are going to find themselves very successful. Yeah. Yeah, it's very well said. Take care, Seth. Thank you. Seth Dillon, CEO of the Babylon Bee. I so appreciate his work in calling out the illogical, nonsensical and bad ideas in our culture. 
His work has also given him a platform to engage with lots of people who are opposed to biblical truth. I've encountered lots of opposition myself, and I do my best to show people that God loves them while remaining committed to the truth. You can do it. In fact, I had that opportunity. I was on the broadcast saying if you're in the abortion industry and you want to uh, talk about how to reduce abortion, I'd love to meet with you. And uh, I had a woman who called me in the abortion industry, and we met. It was an incredible encounter. And uh, in the end, uh, it really ended up being a moment that God used in her life to move her closer to him. I love that. And one of the reasons for doing the Refocus podcast is to help encourage you in your faith to have conversations with people who may have never experienced the love of God. In fact, in that meeting, she said to me, my friends said you were going to put a voodoo hex on me. I said, what What do you know about Christianity? She said, not much, just that you want to kill us. I said, I don't know a single person who wants to kill you. And uh, that kind of made her look at me with a little bit of uh, puzzlement. And I said, what do you know about Christianity? And she said, not much. And then I asked her if I could share with her what it is we believe. And I took 15, 20 minutes and shared the gospel with her. One of the reasons for doing the Refocus podcast is to help encourage you in your faith to have conversations with people who may have never experienced the love of God. Uh, Frankly, that's probably the main reason we're here, to do that work for the Lord so that they could feel and experience his love. And beyond the conversations, I also want to encourage you to look for opportunities to serve and help others around you. How else are we going to help others understand who Jesus is if we don't show them and share the hope we have as Christians. I hope Refocus is helping to equip you to reach others with the love of Christ. And if you agree with that mission that we're on, I hope you'll support us to have more conversations like this one. Uh, With the gift of any amount, I'll send you a copy of my book, Refocus, Living a Life That Reflects God's Heart. Now let's get to the inbox segment. Here's a voicemail from Jennifer. Hi, Jim. I'd like to ask you about my friend. She believes that truth is relative, and I'm trying to talk to her about the truth. But when I bring up the Bible, she says it's arrogant to think that I know what's best for everyone else. I want to help her know the truth, but I don't know how. You know, Jennifer, one way to do that, think of a designer. I love this analogy. If God is who he said he is, then he is the designer of the universe, of us that were made in his image. And I would speak to the friend in that regard. If he created us and gave us the manual for life, then it's upon her to really seek out the truth. And I think I would approach her from that vantage point. If she has not wrestled with these questions, why not read the Word of God? Read the Bible. That's what captivated me. I was sitting in college thinking, okay, I've read these business books, but if I've never read the Bible and that's going to be the book that literally could save my soul, I better spend a little time reading that. So I did. I read it cover to cover, and through it, the Lord convinced me that he is who he said he was. Now, a lot of life had gone before that to set me up for that moment. But that's when I really gave my life to the Lord completely. And I would challenge her to find the manual of the one who said he created us in his image and to read it. And then let God's word do the work. 
And thanks for that question, Jennifer. And because I used your question today, I'll send you a copy of my book, Refocus. And if you have a question for me, do like Jennifer did and click on the tab I've provided on the right side of the show page that says leave a voicemail. Thanks for listening to Refocus with Jim Daly. You can help us to promote it by telling your friends. Also, uh, like, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Refocus, I'll have an inspiring conversation with Virginia Prodan, an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, about her incredible experiences of sharing her faith while suffering persecution from the communist government in Romania. To my surprise, he said yes, and I started to share the gospel with him. Um, He put the gun down. He noticed several times his uh, shoulders relaxed. I have to tell you that I recited the gospel mm. to him and I watched him melting in under God's word. That's on the next Refocus with Jim Daly. It can be challenging to inspire your community to see life the way God sees it. So, what's the solution? Well, on June 15th, Focus on the Family is hosting Sea Life 24. And no matter where you are or who you are, you can be a part of this free event with speakers like Ben and Kirsten Watson and real stories about choosing life. Sea Life 24 will inspire you to translate your faith into action. Register today at sealife24.org.